This is the Go Pack Podcast with your host, Jessica Curtis. Today, we welcome Vice President of American Global Strategies, Greg Smith. American Global Strategies was founded by former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien and focuses on defense, aerospace, private equity, technology, and maritime. Greg previously served as Special Assistant to the President and Deputy Director of Political Affairs for Policy and Personnel. Prior to that, Greg was a lobbyist working on a defense portfolio focused on missile defense, counter-tunnel programs, and counter-unmanned aircraft systems cooperation. Greg doesn't just have experience at the White House and the federal level. Greg also worked at the state level to build a coalition in Utah that aimed to prevent Utah public pension funds from investing in foreign companies doing business in Iran's petroleum sector. Greg, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jessica. Appreciate being on and all of the work of uh, GOPAC and uh, glad to join you. Let's start with the basics. How did you first get involved in politics? So it first started when I decided to go to college. So I started a little later than most. Uh, born and raised in Pittsburgh, but decided to move out west where I attended school in Utah. And it was through that journey that in a roundabout way, I got introduced to APAC, uh, which was my first job out of college and where I spent close to seven years. Previous to that, though, as a student, I was part of their outreach program. And so the premise at the time, at least being that support for Israel needed to come from as diverse of community as possible. And so leaders, whether it be in the African-American community, the Latino community, the evangelical Christian community. And so BYU was a school of interest where you do see a lot of disproportionate political activity of folks that graduate from BYU. And so I was uh, coaxed into going to a meet and greet, likely over free pizza. And that started a a really fun adventure that led to our uh, gaining a, a very deep understanding of the U.S.-Israel relationship and triggered our interest in getting involved in the state legislature, which you had mentioned, uh, building a coalition to get legislation passed that restricted the retirement systems at the time from investing in foreign companies doing business in Iran's petroleum sector. And so there's a lot to be learned in that process. That was my, my experience outside of school, gaining an education both in the political and policy realms. And so through that involvement with APAC and then the legislature, legislature in Salt Lake City, I I really got more and more opportunities along the way to deepen my engagement in politics. And it all started with a slice of pizza, which is not a bad way to start. (laughs) (laughs) We were lucky enough to have Ambassador Robert O'Brien speak to a group of legislators last year at our annual State Leaders Summit. He spoke about rising threats for America. What would you say are Ambassador O'Brien's areas of focus currently, and what's on the forefront of your mind as we enter election season? So the election is what most folks are are focused on domestically. Of course, you've got an election coming up in what, just over 40 days. And so whether or not we break a 50-50 tie in the Senate, and then of course, there's a very small margin in the House for Democrats to either maintain control or Republicans to take over in the House. And so that's domestically what the big focus is when it comes to foreign affairs. I think that with everything going on, it goes without saying that Ukraine is still a major focus and whether or not the U.S. is providing the adequate support needed
needed to get to a, as successful of an outcome as possible there. And so that's a big concern. And then China, uh, really, at the end of the day, is something that cannot be emphasized enough, both in terms of its real impact with everyday businesses and supply chain issues. And we're all still dealing with the aftermath of COVID and some of the uh, externalities associated with that. But then there's the larger question of Taiwan. And so China, it's it's to be assumed that they're, they're watching closely to see how things transpire in Ukraine with Russia's invasion. And they're taking notes and they're going to ultimately adapt and use that to make their strategy vis-a-vis Taiwan more effective to their goals and objectives. And so that's something we've got to be talking about. And I think that candidates are part of that process. Most people that are running for Congress don't have a real depth of knowledge on foreign policy and national security. And so educating on those issues is critical. And Ambassador O'Brien plays a strong role in, in speaking with candidates and talking about the importance of standing up to the CCP and supporting policies that are going to be ultimately successful in getting us to where we need to be as a country. Absolutely. You mentioned China. With them being a major supplier for a large portion of basic American life like technology, how do you think shifts in the economic climate will change their role? And and kind of beyond that, will companies follow Apple out of China or do you think America is going to start depending on other companies to supply more to us or will we continue to kind of have China be who we're dependent upon? You know, I, I think that with COVID and a lot of what we've seen in the aftermath, it, it's been such a disruptor to the conventional way of thinking that I think it really has opened the eyes of a lot of Americans uh, and, and in particular business leaders on, okay, maybe this is an opportunity to really rethink what we're doing. Maybe it's not smart to be disproportionately dependent on a country that's not an ally. And so whether it's nearshoring or ally shoring, another term that has popped up in recent years, or best case scenario, bringing your manufacturing home entirely to provide good paying jobs for everyday Americans, that would be ideal, right? And it sounds good, but that's a process. Companies can't just flip a switch and do that realistically while keeping their doors open. And so it is critical and and hopefully an opportunity for business leaders to take a serious look at how they can effectuate a strategy to do any number of those things. And like any investment strategy, you never want all of your eggs to be in one basket, right? And so uh, I think if we're going to learn anything, which hopefully we will in terms of how to respond to something like COVID, you don't want to be overly reliant on, on countries that aren't going to be necessarily in a position to help out when needed. And so to shore up allies more in the affirmative, that's where some of the nearshoring can really play a productive role. And of course, bringing jobs home is is always a good thing and, and something that I think both parties have historically gotten wrong over the last couple of decades. And I think that the American people are, are ready for solutions there. And that's why I think you see uh, this being actually a bipartisan issue that folks can, can agree on more than maybe you would expect. A hundred percent. I agree with that. I want to shift gears a little bit towards your experience as regional political director and your time at the White House working in political affairs. Tell us what state you worked closely with and as you worked with different states, did you did your advice change with them in regard to policy and based on each 
state's international investments. You know, when I worked at APAC, I was based in Los Angeles uh, during the time that I was a political director. And so I covered Southern California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, uh, and Utah. And so I would meet with congressional candidates and talk about the issues, do a policy briefing, work with them to the degree that they wanted to write a position paper on the U.S.-Israel relationship. And so uh, I'm a big believer in all politics being local. And something that I would always emphasize is how can you marry important local issues to the district that you're dealing with, with the other issue at hand. In my case, it was Israel and making the case that supporting a strong U.S.-Israel relationship was in America's interest. And so what better way to do that than to talk about why, you know, Israel excels in water technology. If you're in Southern California or Nevada or Utah, those are all very important issues. And so one's ability to speak locally to these broader issues just makes it less of a foreign issue to the person that you're sitting across from. And it makes it uh, more likely that they're going to really uh, understand what you're talking about and make them feel more invested in supporting it. And it actually makes the case that it is a value add to have this relationship, right? And so almost regardless of what one does in life, I think it's important to keep that in mind. And so at the White House, it was much more of a holistic national view on policies. And I participated in what's called the policy process on behalf of our office, the Office of Political Affairs. And so it's a little wonky, but there's a three-step process by which any process matures to the Oval Office for a final determination by the president. It's a PCC meeting, uh, a DC meeting, a deputies committee meeting, and a PC meeting, a principals committee meeting. And so it was a, a pretty interesting process to be a part of where you're coming up with different recommendations on policies that you're grappling with, whether it be a proactive assertion of a policy proposal or a reaction to current events and policy that's needed as a result or statute statutory policy work, things that needed to happen because of existing law. And so a lot of experience. And, you know, with that, it was more of how do you best keep up with all of these issues because they're so complicated and it never really ends. And so you just have to be constantly preparing for meetings and making sure you have a, a deep enough understanding to really be able to get into the complexity of it. For sure. What would be your most memorable experience during your time at the White House? Well, just from a personal standpoint, yeah, yeah. You know, I had the privilege of being able to fly on Air Force One and Air Force Two from time to time. And my first time flying on Air Force One, they have these really neat phones that you can make calls from. And there's an operator that finds the person that you're trying to get a hold of, right? And so when they answer it, it says, you know, this is Air Force One. We have a phone call that we'd like to patch through. Do you accept? And so naturally, I called my mother. And <laughs> so that was a really neat experience. Uh, I tried calling my grandma, but she screened the call. So that was kind of funny. Uh, my mom crazy. actually had to let her know that it was not a prank and she could, in fact, take the call and it would be her grandson. So I was able to pull that off after some negotiating. On the policy side, it's it's tough to say. There were a lot of great experiences. One that sticks out is, uh, and it was kind of a random small issue, but you know, one that's memorable to me, there was this group out in Utah that had flagged that an individual's name was misspelled uh, in Arlington Cemetery. Her 
name on the tombstone was misspelled inexplicably. And there was this amazing history behind the story. Her name is Seraph Young Ford, and she was the first woman to legally cast a ballot in the United States as the result of a women's suffrage law. And so we were coming up on a pretty big anniversary for women's suffrage at the time. And lo and behold, nobody knew that Seraph Young Ford was even buried at Arlington Cemetery. She was only there because of the service of her husband in the Civil War, and they misspelled her name and nobody really kept track of it. And so all these years later, it was flagged that she was, in fact, the first person to vote as a result of a women's suffrage law. And what a meaningful gesture it would be to have her name spelled correctly on her tombstone and to maybe go the extra step of having her history added to the notable women that are buried at Arlington National Cemetery. And so it's a surprisingly, but maybe not surprisingly bureaucratic process to get such a change done. But we worked the process internally and with some great stakeholders out in Utah, and we were able to get that done and then have a ceremony there at the cemetery where we were able to bring her still living family, you know, great, great grandchildren and whatnot to experience that and honor her legacy and use it as a teaching moment on how our history is something that can be something that propels good and and teaches those important lessons and can be an inspiration to a lot of folks. And so that was kind of a, a neat, unexpected memory that I was able to make on the policy side. How wonderful. That's, that is, that's a really neat thing to be involved in and be a part of. Shifting gears again, and this is a kind of final thought, I want your predictions for Utah. What do you see happening on the state <laughs> level and the federal level? Okay. Uh, So for 2022, there's really only one race to get into of note, and that is the Senate race. So Senator Mike Lee is up for re-election for what would be his third term. And so he has served now close to two full terms. And he's the senior senator from Utah, and he's seeing a pretty unique race in that the Democratic Party decided not to nominate a candidate for the ballot, and they coalesce behind an independent candidate, Evan McMullen, who is uh, running. And so it's a race between the two of them. Evan McMullen is somebody who has a little bit of name ID from a previously unsuccessful run for president. And so he's trying to recycle some of that momentum into a race now for a statewide office in Utah. I think that Senator Lee is in a really strong position. He has a very strong reputation for being a constitutional conservative and is always very active in the state in meeting with folks and I think does a fantastic job representing his constituents. And so I would expect just looking at the numbers that he's likely to see a high single digit to low double digit victory there. The polls are obviously all over the place. Everybody releases the polls that make them look best, but I would have to expect him to be in a strong position there, contrary to some of the noise that you see from national pundits. I don't think it's going to be a particularly close race, but we'll see. And then really, Really, I think what isn't getting as much attention is 2024 in Utah. And so there's a lot that's going to happen and nobody really knows what yet, but Senator Romney is going to be up after serving his first cycle as a U.S. Senator. But you also have Spencer Cox, who is the governor of Utah, who's going to be up for re-election if he's running for re-election or other office, right? So there's a lot of variables. The attorney general there, Sean Reyes, is also up that cycle and he could decide to run for office or 
could run for re-election. The lieutenant governor, Deidre Henderson, is in the same position, right? The congressional delegation could all make determinations depending on what seats are open or if they want to challenge incumbents. And in a state like Utah, that's really where you see a lot of the action is in the primary. And so I think you could see some interesting 3D chess between now and then that's going to lead to a lot of turnover. And I think that's really one of the overlooked trends out there, not just in Utah, but even nationally. I think we've seen now 50% turnover in Congress since just 2016, which is a pretty remarkable thing. And I don't think this cycle will be any exception to the national picture. We've now seen eight straight cycles with over 50 new members of Congress elected, and we're already guaranteed to have that here this coming November. And so on the education front, there's a lot of work to do. And uh, Utah's no exception. I think this will be a pretty stable cycle in 2022. But for 2024, I think you're going to potentially see a lot of turnover and uh, interesting musical chairs take place. So we're going to have you back in 2024 to be our play-by-play Utah expert. Greg, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Greg Smith, Vice President of American Global Strategies. Have a great day. Thanks so much, Jessica. This is Jessica Curtis, Executive Director of GoPack and your host. Talk to you next time. This has been the GoPack Podcast. Learn how we're educating and electing a new generation of Republican leaders at GoPack.org.